You've reached the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. My guest today is Keith Hall. I've been trying to get Keith on for about a year, so I finally finally got him on here. Um, Keith is the Assistant Director of Fleet and Aviation Services with the Los Angeles Water and Power District. He's, it's one of the largest in the U.S. He's also an instructor and pilot. We'll get into that. and He's got good stories about that. He has a, a BS in business management from Pepperdine and a master's in leadership from USC, the University of Southern California, and holds a teaching credential from UCLA. But well, we, you have a lot of great stories. And uh, it's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here, Keith, is you you're just have an amazing story and how you've, you've moved up the ranks of your organization. It's one of the largest um, water and power um, organizations in the country. So thank you for being here. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so first I wanted to get into, um, where were you born and raised, Keith? I was born in Los Angeles, California, raised in South Central LA. And my, my parents, uh, my mom came from Oklahoma and my dad came from Louisiana and uh, they moved here to Los Angeles and raised a family of five. Well, I was gonna, yeah, I was going to ask you that. So how, how many kids are in the family? Then? Yeah, five? I, I, have, I have four older sisters. Oh my God! So you're the youngest. I'm the youngest. They claim I'm spoiled, but that remains the bee thing. <laughs> so you grew up, you grew up in South Central LA, and what was growing up like in South Central LA for you? And was it difficult? What What, what are the kind of things? Did you have a great good childhood? What was that like for you? Know, I had a, a a remarkable childhood. It was a great childhood. My parents uh, did a great job of giving us a a safe place and a good uh, foundation when they as they raised us. Um, I went to public school um, all the way through LA Unified School District, and um, my elementary school was 116th Street School, and the teachers there really cared. They worked really hard to try to develop the kids, and that was a blessing in and of itself. And when you were growing up, what was your relationship like with your parents? Oh, excellent. I could not have asked for better parents. Um, one of the things that uh, I tell folks that uh, my parents did, um, my mother she actually would go down to the school and find out what textbooks they were going to be using. Before I went to kindergarten, she actually went out and bought the Dick and Jane readers. And I was reading before I got to kindergarten. Uh, when I got there, it was super easy for me because uh, I already read all that material. Um, they were both very good. Both parents were very good about being consistent and also about teaching you critical thinking skills. When you ask questions, they didn't just give you the answers. They helped you get to the answer. So, oh, like, like, give me an example of that. Well, um, gee, asking a question, I don't know, but I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. One thing that occurred to me, I remember we were going to a trip to um, go fishing. My father and I were going to go fishing, and uh, I was in elementary school, and my dad asked me to calculate the eel mileage. And uh, I'm like, okay, well, yeah, I guess this does limit itself. Well, I'm like, okay, how do you do that? And uh, he says, well, you got to know how many miles you're driving, right? Yeah, okay. Well, you got to know how many gallons of gas you're going to burn. So how do you do that? And kind of worked me through that. So it gave us a lot of opportunities to do those kinds of exercises in real life uh, conditions. So what did, your, what did your mom and dad do growing up? My mother was an eligibility worker for LA County Department of Public Social Services. And my father was an auto repair technician. He actually was the uh, first journeyman uh, mechanic to uh, that was black that went to work for LA County. Wow, that's amazing. And did he work on cars and stuff at home? Did you Were you mechanical when you were growing up? I always was inquisitive. He didn't really work on cars too much at home, um, but I was always inquisitive. I would always take stuff apart to see how it worked. Um, and uh, I guess as I got older, he would show me how to uh, do a lot of things to cars. He actually, he ended up teaching uh, part-time at Compton College himself, teaching auto repair. Uh, he was teaching on Saturdays, and he would take me with him down to uh, Compton College uh, when I was 12, 13, 14 years of age, and let me kind of sit in on the classes. And and what was your relationship like with your sisters? Oh, great. I, I have great sisters, um, very supportive. Um, we're, we're close. We have a sibling thread. We, we all talk to each other by text every day, and uh, we're kind of ruthless with the jokes, but uh, a lot of love there and a lot of support for each other. So when you're growing up, who were your role models? Did you have any role models when you were growing up? 
You know, it's funny you should ask that. I remember, again, going back to elementary school, having to write an essay about who your role models were, and I chose my parents. And a lot of kids chose athletes. And I, I thought that was strange. It's like, why wouldn't your parents be your role models? But as I look back, I, I realized how lucky I was to have such great role models. And why do you think they were such great role models to you? When you like, when you look back on in time, why do you think they were good, such good role they models? They were good for a number of reasons. You know, they they were married forty some odd years before my mother passed away, and all five of us kids, we never heard a raised voice between them. Uh, never heard any profanity. Um, they they modeled what I guess you could say good citizenship was, um, but you know they modeled how to have a good relationship. Um, they were fair. They would listen. Um, they were firm. Um, <laughs> growing up uh, today, I think it was very different than what I grew up in. Um, when I would challenge a parent about, well, why do I have to do X, Y, and Z? The answer was, because I said so. <laughs> there was no debate about it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they, they, you know, they taught us what it was to have integrity, uh, to be decent people, to treat others with, with kindness, that kind of thing. And what kind of stuff did you do when you were growing up? Were you, were you into sports or what are the other extracurricular activities, I guess, were you? I used to love to go fishing with my father. Uh, we did that pretty routinely. Uh, we go on family trips to, um, like, say, uh, Yosemite, some of the local lakes around town. Um, I was also into photography. I did a lot of black and white photography with uh, actually taking the pictures, developing the negatives, and, and making the prints. That was a lot of fun. Do you still interact and do a lot of these things with your with your parents now? No, both my parents have passed away, um, but uh, I, I have great memories of those. And, and it's funny, I oftentimes hear their voices as I'm trying to make decisions about what to do in life. And uh, uh, I have a good time with it. <laughs> and when you were growing up, did you have good grades? And did you kind of know when you were growing up what you wanted to do growing up? Or did you have any idea at all in what direction you would go? I didn't really know what I wanted to do growing up. I had good grades, kindergarten through junior high school, um, mostly A's and a few B's here and there. And uh, when I got to high school, I got lazy. Um, I ended up with average grades and I could have done better. I just wasn't really motivated to do better. Um, I certainly knew I, I needed to do well enough to uh, graduate. And I accomplished that. And in some classes, I got A's, but uh, I just wasn't putting forth the effort I should have. Um, when my father opened his own auto repair shop, I told him, hey, Dad, I want to come down there with you and, and do the books and you know, kind of be the accountant for the business. He said, sure, come on down. And that first uh, Saturday on the job, uh, he actually had me doing bricks on a car. <laughs> and I started off thinking, this is not the books. This is not what I had in mind. Well, that was 1979, and that Saturday, at the end of the day, he paid me $60 for my work. And it's 1979, 60 bucks. And I thought, oh, my God, I could do this. <laughs> well, so, that, that's one of the things, Keith, uh, you and I have had this conversation in the past, and um, I find it so interesting because you have a master's degree. You're, you're thinking about going to get your doctorate later, and you became a teacher, and you've done a million different things, and you've risen very, very high in your organization. And you and I have had these conversations about kind of like your evolution through this process. And you were saying at the end of high school, you really didn't know what you wanted to do. And like you said, your grades had, had kind of fallen, fallen back. When did you decide, you said you started working at, at your dad's shop. Was there a point where you said, I got to go to school or this is not going to go. What am I going to do with this? And how did that develop? Well, there was always an expectation that we would go to school after uh, high school. I go to college after high school. Um, and I remember talking to my sisters when I was in high school, you know, mom and dad are not going to let you not go to uh, college. <laughs> so I was thinking, well, I'll be grown. I can do what I want. But uh, nevertheless, just that uh, parental pressure, uh, I went to college. I knew by the time I graduated high school that I wanted to uh, be a mechanic in the family business. Um, you know, when he opened the business, it was 1979, I was in ninth grade, and I was thinking more um, along the lines, like I say, of doing the books for the business. Once I actually started working on vehicles, it was fun. So uh, by the time I graduated high school, that was what I wanted to do. And as soon as I graduated, I was working full-time in Hall's Garage, the, the family business. Um, went to Compton College right away. Um, the first several courses I took, the first 21 units 
were all in auto repair. Um, and then slowly but surely, I, I got the general ed stuff done. Took me probably four, maybe five years to get that done. But uh, finally got that done. And then you went and you got you got your 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 bachelor's bachelor's. Um, did you get that at the same time as you were working at your at, at your family shop, or how did no, that happen? No, I did the bachelor's much later. As a friend of mine says, I was a late bloomer. Um, I got the associate's degree um, late eighties, eighty eight, I think eighty seven, somewhere in there. Um, continued to work in a house garage. Did that for a number of years. I started working at the city of Los Angeles as an equipment mechanic in 1996. Well, um, so, so why'd you make that? Why'd you make that transition? Were you happy working your dad's shop or you just said, I got to do something else? Or how did this, how did this all happen? That's a great question. So there were a few things that influenced that decision. One of the things was that um, I was, you know, my father finally retired. I took over the business and ran the business. Um, I realized I was handling a lot of money as, you know, cars would come in, customers would come in. I'd handle a lot of money and then pay all the bills, the payroll, the parts bills, and so on and so forth. And then I'd look at what I had left over, which was certainly enough to make a living. It's like, man, I'm working six days a week and really hard. Um, and you have a few knucklehead customers that uh, unfortunately try to take advantage of you. These are customers that you you didn't have a relationship with. There was somebody that was referred to the shop. You saw them the first time and uh, you repair their headlight and they come back the next week. My transmission is not working, it's your fault. <laughs> so I kind of looked at all that and thought, you know, uh, my dad having worked in civil service for you know 25 years of his career, seemed like a good move. And I ultimately applied uh, with the city of LA, got a job. I actually pulled my father out of retirement and asked him, hey, can you come down and run the business for a while? And let me see if I like this. And he was gracious enough to do that. And uh, I worked for the city for at least a year, maybe a year and a half. And then I said, yeah, this works. My stress level just went down because I, you know, I had resources at the city that uh, I didn't have at Hall's Garage. I had to do everything myself. You know, I was the yeah. mechanic. I was the manager. I was the, the personnel director, um, the accountant. <laughs> so, so you basically, so I, okay, so let me get this right. You basically ran the shop by yourself when you're so you basically started working with your dad right and then, and then eventually your dad retired uh, retired and then you and then you oh so you were doing everything from the beginning yes. to the end yes wow that's rough and did, how did you like when you first did it was it like was it that's a, a significant challenge was it difficult to run a business by yourself you were so young at the time uh having a business at that age what kind of stresses and what did it teach you i guess you know the I wouldn't say it was difficult in the sense that I recognized it at the time. I remember my sister Lauren, who moved to Phoenix, she came and visited one day. Uh, she came into town. She stopped by the shop to say hi. And I was running around, answering the phone, talking to customers, just doing the stuff I routinely do. And she mentioned to me, wow, you're really busy. I had never thought about it. I was just in the forest and was really busy. Probably the the one gift that Hall's Garage gave me that has really been tremendous to me to this day is that I learned to become a very good judge of character, of, of a person's character, very quickly. Um, that's been helpful. If someone walks in, they sit down, they talk to me, I can tell if their heart's in the right place or not. And how can you do that? How can you tell? Like, what kind of, what kind of skills do you think you develop where you, you can figure that out? I just, I, I guess I just, I easily recognize that someone's being genuine. And uh, I don't know that I can describe any particular thing that I'm looking for, body language, tone, but um, just in talking to them, it's like, okay, this person is genuine. So let me ask you this, and this is before I get on to the, your, your, your other part of your career. What was the most difficult kind of job-wise? What was the most common problem people came in with their cars? Um, there was the most common problem with cars. It wasn't that there was any one particular thing that would fail all the time. I felt bad for customers that had the wrong model car that needed a lot of maintenance. Um, the other thing I've always felt bad about was when somebody would call me up and say, hey, somebody stole my battery out of my car or they broke a window and here I am repairing it and having the charging for it, but they just had this bad luck. But, uh, you know, outside of that, um, there wasn't any particular trend I will say that I really appreciated the friendships I developed, the relationships I developed with my, with my customers. 
Uh, that was probably the hardest part about walking away from Hall's Garage. But uh, it, so it was what, did you guys, did you finally sell it? And is it still there? You know, I finally sold it. It is still there. Um, sold it to, there was a trucking company across the street. Sold it, to, sold it to that guy. He needed some more space for his trucks. And uh, actually, I don't talk to him that often, but I did talk to him probably about six months ago. <laughs> so he's doing well. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. So you moved over to LA and, and then what did you, what was your first position? Because and part of the reason that I, I, it's just an amazing story because you really did start from the bottom. You did, you started, you started at LA um, Water and Power. You started at the bottom and you didn't even have a degree. And so where did you first start? And what was that like for you? So when I started with the city of LA, I started with the Department of Recreation and Parks. Um, they had six, what they call turf shops. Now, mind you, I was a journeyman auto repair technician working on cars and trucks. And I went down and interviewed. <laughs> my, my mom's funny. I remember telling her I was going to go interview with the uh, city of L.A. And she says, go down there and pretend like you're intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, let me put that in context. My mother told us five kids day in and day out. You guys are so smart. You're the brightest people. You can do anything you want to do. We, got, we heard that over and over so often that we actually believed it. So for her to tell me that and, and tease me, it was a good, it was a good laugh. But uh, I did go down there and pretend to be intelligent. And they actually hired me. <laughs> um, came in as an equipment mechanic. That's what most people would call uh, all repair technician or auto mechanic. Um, started working on turf equipment, um, and it was interesting because uh, it was everything from literally chainsaws to walk behind lawnmowers like you would have at home to riding equipment, cement mixers big riding lawnmowers, all kinds of equipment, uh, stuff that I hadn't worked on um, in you know, Hall's Garage. I was working on cars and trucks. Did that for, I think it was about four years I was at Reckon Parks. And it was interesting because people told me, oh, you got to leave here and go to another department. You can never promote here. Uh, people will only see you as, quote unquote, a lawnmower mechanic. Again, my parents gave us so much confidence. That didn't phase me at all. I never believed that. I just thought, well, whatever. Um, I saw an opportunity to uh, promote to automotive supervisor and took the exam, got on the list, and ultimately promoted to automotive supervisor. I went to a different department where they actually had cars and trucks. And um, my first assignment there with the Department of General Services was at a facility called Piper Tech. It's down next to Union Station. Um, let's see if I can silence that doorbell. <laughs> it's down near uh, Union Station. Um, we had 1,500 vehicles there. Um, that was where the executive fleet was serviced, the mayor's vehicles, city council vehicles, and so on and so forth. Um, day shift, night shift. I had eight guys I was supervising at night. And uh, day shift, there was a supervisor with eight pe people there. Um, it was a great job. Um, I did that for one year uh, at night. And then I moved over to um, a, a position opened up uh, at um, what we call the Central Service Yard, which is near the um, Griffith Park area. Actually, it's technically in Griffith Park. Uh, went there, that fleet was different. It was neat. It was uh, 650 vehicles. And that so, was you went, so, you went, so you went from 1,500 vehicles to 600. And let me let me go, go back a little bit on this. Sure. When you became a supervisor, at that point, you had never supervised people before. What was I, that? What was that like for you, I guess? That's a great question. I, so I've never supervised people in you know civil service capacity before. I, I certainly had mechanics that I hired and fired in Hall's Garage back in the day. Um, I think at the most I had four people working for me at a given point in time. Coming into the city, um, that first four years as a mechanic, you know, I kind of learned how things worked. Um, once I got over to Piper Tech and was supervising the eight folks at the city, um, it wasn't that tough a transition. Um, I kind of knew the, the rules, the expectations, um, and, you know, just treated people the way that uh, I expected my supervisors to treat me. Um, my first assignment was really easy in that I had a bunch of guys that were very easy to work with at Pepper Tech. Um, my second assignment at CSY, CSY, the vast majority of the guys were great to work with. I did have an employee who gave me a challenge, and that employee actually helped me become a better supervisor because it you know I had to really learn all the rules, the insides, the out, 
um, and how, how to deal with a challenging employee. So, so can you tell me a little bit about that generally when you have a challenging employee like that, did you know the processes and what did you do to try to motivate it or correct it? And, and if you can't correct it, what are the kind of things that you ended up learning to do? Cause I, it sounded like it was a difficult time for you and you'd only been doing a job a short time, right? I've been doing the job uh, a year when I got that to that assignment as a supervisor. Um, I had some training, um, so I knew what you were supposed to do by the textbook. Uh, the textbook says, hey, explain what the expectations are, explain what the department policies are, and hold folks accountable. And that is what I tell people to this day. It's pretty straightforward. You have to lay out the expectations, what the policies are, and then hold them accountable. Uh, and that's what I did. Um, so every time this particular employee would come to me with a, a challenge that uh, was out of bounds, so to speak, it was, hey, I don't want to have to write you up, but I got a pen. I'm ready to go. And then how long did that, that eventually resolve? And then you, you moved on to the next, your, next, your next promotion after that? So my next assignment after uh, CSY, um, I actually took over as our training and safety officer for the division. So at that time in general services, we had a division of about 600 uh, personnel. Um, we had 11,000 vehicles that we serviced at that time. And uh, I had so, so wait a minute, this, this, is for the, this is for the city of LA. City of LA, one of the departments. So this was the Department of General Services. And so uh, you, had, you have 11,000 vehicles there. Yes. Um, and, and if you're curious how that works, so the city of LA basically has five different fleets um, LAPD has their own fleet group. Uh, they call themselves the Motor Transport Division. Um, airport, they have their own fleet. Fire Department has their own fleet. Um, Department of Water and Power, where I am now, we have our own fleet team. Um, General Services provides maintenance, vehicle maintenance for the other departments outside of those. Wow. And it's 5,000, and it was 5,000 vehicles. Uh, it was 11,000 vehicles at General Services. Oh, 11,000 vehicles. Oh, yeah. my God. And so you have... That's amazing. And so you were handling the training aspect of this. Correct. Training and safety uh, and compliance. So I had a team of about four folks working for me, maybe five. I think it was five people working for me at the time. And that was really some of the most rewarding work I've done. Um, one of the things I would do is to try to reduce the injuries that were occurring. So when I took over that job, we were averaging 100. Well, not averaging. We had 120 injuries the year before I took over that job. And uh, I went to um, what was it, University of uh, California at San Diego, took uh, Cal OSHA classes, uh, learned how to help people be safer in the workplace. The second year I was there, we cut those uh, injuries down to 66. Um, so it was almost a 50% reduction. And uh, really, I was really pleased with that, very happy with it, because that meant people got to go home without getting hurt. Um, that was important to me, and uh, I think people in the division appreciated, you know, my caring about people. Um, they saw it, and it made it easier for folks to do the right thing. So these were like, so you gradually just were promoting from one job to the next. And was were these was each of these promotions was this more pay, or was it, or they allowed all transfers? So the the ones I've talked about so far, they were all lateral transfers. I was the automotive supervisor at Piper Tech and the Central Service Yard. When I took over the training center, um, I was the automotive supervisor there. My next assignment, uh, I moved into management. And moving into management, uh, I was running probably, I think, six shops. Um, it was an acting assignment. Uh, they couldn't fill a position for whatever budget constraints they had. But... Um, at that point, I was doing the job of a fleet services manager, running, you know, multiple shops and supervising other supervisors. What kind of shops were you running? So these are all auto repair and truck shops. Um, we at, at General Services at that time, they were divided into three areas. Uh, what we call area one, those were all refuse collection vehicles, trash trucks. Um, I want to say we have 700 trash trucks in the city. Uh, it's, been, it's been a long time, but that's, a, that's probably a good number. Um, and then the other two areas, area two and area three, these were everything else. These are cars, pickup trucks, dump trucks, um, construction equipment, you name it, everything else, generators. And so how you went into, so describe them, you went from what, the, what was the difference between 
you were a supervisor and then you went to the management. What's the difference between a supervisor and a manager? You've got, um, you, you, when you're a supervisor, you're running one shop and a team of six, eight people, um, you know, a smaller staff. When you move into the management role, now you're managing six shops. Those supervisors are reporting to you and you're, you're a little bit higher level when you're the first level supervisor, you're in the shop, you're trying to get the vehicles in and out. Um, you know, you're trying to maintain the quality of repairs. Um, you're really focused on giving a good product to the end user. As a manager, you're focused on giving a good project product to the end user, but you're also measuring goals. Are we getting those vehicles in and out timely? Um, how many vehicles do we have overdue for a preventive maintenance inspection? Um, you want to make sure the fleet's safe. You're paying attention to those things uh, very, very closely. What kind of pressures and what was the trans? What was the transition like for you, going from a supervisor to a manager? Did it feel the same to you? Because now you're interacting with other managers. You know, when I promoted from mechanic to supervisor, one thing struck me is like, oh wow, the folks at the supervision level they seem to, as a whole, be more dedicated. Um, moving into management, um, I think you could take that up another step. Um, you know, these folks were a little bit more driven. Um, I think that was my biggest takeaway. Um, yeah. When did you start, when did you decide that, Hey, I'm going to go ahead and get my degree. Were you, when you started to meet other managers at your level, I'm sure that most of them had degrees already probably. Or did you did you say you know what in order for me to move up I'm gonna something pushed you to get your degree what was that? Um, that was me. Um, you know, in my industry, a lot of folks in uh, supervision and management don't have degrees. Um, I always knew that education was important to me. Uh, in fact, my older sister Sharice she got a scholarship to uh, Pepperdine University as she graduated high school. I was so proud of her, and I wanted to go to Pepperdine. But again, when I was graduating high school, I just didn't have the self-discipline to put in the work. And I recognized that. So I got myself through Compton College and I took a break from school. Um, when I got into the city of L.A., um, I always took classes somewhere that would be useful to me. Uh, you know, went to UCLA, got the uh, teaching credential. Um, again, uh, UCSD and, and got a certificate in occupational health and safety because that's what I was doing. Um, and then, you know, just maturing through life, I recognized that I really wanted to go back and get that bachelor's degree. Um, it felt like something unaccomplished. And um, when I got over here to the Department of Water and Power, I uh, went back to Pepperdine. And I shouldn't say back to, but I enrolled in Pepperdine, got the bachelor's degree. I think it took me it was no more than two years to get that done. And I, I believe I took a year off. And then I um, applied to USC for the master's in leadership program and was accepted. So you were working, so you, when, so you, got, you went over, when did you move over to Water and Power? That's what been you, about nine years ago. And what, what position was that? Uh, I came over as a fleet services manager. So um, we have three levels of fleet services manager. So I came in as an entry level fleet services manager. Um, when I got here, they weren't quite sure how they were going to utilize me. So they, I ended up uh, with an assignment in the safety team again. They, they knew I had a really good, strong track record in safety. So um, I worked in safety for about a year or so, and then I moved it back into the maintenance running shops. And here we have 27 shops. Um, you know, it's spread out. People think that we're in the city of L.A., so we're just in the city of L.A., but we're actually not. We... Um, have facilities throughout the city of LA, but we also have facilities in the Owens Valley and in Nevada. So what what's your square square miles coverage? So, you know, the city of LA is 469 square miles, so we service that. And then we service about 5,100 customers in the Owens Valley. But, um, you know, we bring a lot of resources into the city from outside. So we've got uh, water coming from Sierra, the Eastern Sierra uh, Mountain. Um, that's 200 miles and change away uh, through the aqueduct, and we're, we're maintaining that. Um, we've got power coming in from, again, uh, Nevada, um, Northern California. So there's a lot of distribution lines and uh, infrastructure to be maintained. And so you said you also, so you're doing, as, and 
what I find it pretty fascinating is it's not just vehicles, it's actually helicopters. So you have helicopters, you have other type of equipment. Equipment. Yeah, so we have four helicopters here in fleet services. Uh, we have seven helicopter pilots that fly those. Uh, we don't maintain the uh, aircraft. Actually, the Department of General Services maintains the aircraft. So it was kind of interesting when I was at GSD that I had a hand in maintaining them. I came over here to Water and Power, and I have a hand in, in making sure the pilots are, are going out on missions. Um, but yeah, we're we're very diverse. We have, right now, you know, I'm Assistant Director of the Division of Fleet Services. Um, our sections, we have the Fleet Maintenance Section, that's the 27 shops. We have Fleet Operations, where we have equipment operators uh, and equipment that we loan out to divisions to do construction work, essentially. We have the fleet engineering, that's the procurement side of the house where there are engineers that prepare designs and specifications for our equipment so we can go out and buy it. Um, and then the aviation services group, certainly. What are some of the kind of pressures that you feel, especially, you know, some years we have this drought, sometimes we don't have the drought. Um, when we have bad weather, inclement weather, how do you deal with that? Is that, is that something you always have to prepare for? Is it becoming more challenging? Is that one of the stresses that you have in your job? It is one of the stresses. You know, we're entirely ratepayer supported. Um, so for all of us managers, we're always thinking about the best value for the ratepayer um, and reliability for the people that use our services. That, you know, re reliability is right there at the top of our, our list along with safety. Um, you know, I, I genuinely consider myself a public servant. I want folks to have running water and electricity. And the way that happens is with support from our group. So when somebody calls me from the division and I've gotten this call and they say, hey, we've got a flood going on in the Owens Valley because there's a lot of snow melting off of the mountain. I'm sending them resources. I'm trying to figure out how to get them there quickly, safely, efficiently, and making sure they have everything they need. Um, I've gotten calls in the middle of the night hey, the power went off in this neighborhood and um, we need some resources here. And I've had to make those phone calls to uh, dispatch teams out there to, to help with that. So how does that happen? Like when we, I, 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 you know, I'm up in the Bay Area, we have a lot, we have PG&E and PG&E's has some significant problems because of the fires and, and, and flooding. And so sometimes power goes out and there's a lot of issues, especially because there's a lack of water in lots of places in California. How do you manage all those things? Is, is, has there ever been a time where you're mul you're kind of multitasking and having to do maintenance as, as well as having maybe four or five, six emergencies happening at one time? Uh, that's not uncommon. Um, yeah, we're, we're managing that. Um, when PG is a great example, you know, when a fire breaks out up north, we do mutual aid support. So we'll send, you know, that's not my group, but the department will send uh, um, they're called electric distribution mechanics to go help. You know, they used to be called linemen, but, uh, but they'll send these folks out to go help. Uh, they'll send out a couple of crews or you know whatever they need to help them. Um, my division will send mechanics to go out and help make sure those trucks continue to run in the field. We'll send fuel trucks out there and we will fuel vehicles in the field. So yeah, it's not uncommon for us to be responding to an emergency and we're still focusing on keeping the rest of our infrastructure running. Yeah, it, it seems like it's just, it, it's gotta be a lot of pressure, especially when they've had, when it's fire season and it's, and then when you're having a lot of down, you know, some serious rain issues going on, it's gotta be a lot of pressure on everybody to maintain those services. What do you do to manage your own stress in the job? I think for me, one of the things I do is I recognize that, you know, you can only do what you can do. Um, I'm, I'm very driven. Folks folks tell me, you know, Keith, you're, you're very reasonable in your ask, but you expect your asks to be met. Um, managing that stress is, you know, recognizing that it's there, talking to my colleagues about it, venting, um, but also recognizing that you can only do what you can do with the resources you have but make sure that you utilize all the resources you have. So how do you make sure that you utilize the resources you have? I mean, you've moved up in your organization because obviously you're a very organized person. You were running your own business. 
what kind of recommendations would you give to somebody if they say, hey, you know what? I'm not that organized of a person, but I, I'm very motivated. What would you recommend someone if they want to, if they want to grow an organization like yourself? You know, I just, I guess I don't take no for an answer. Um, you know, I have a vision. I, I will take a look at what exists and figure out how to improve it um, and develop that vision and then get others to share in the vision. Um, and it's folks, it's not uncommon for folks to tell you, well, we can't do that because, okay, well, let's find out a way that we can do it. Uh, that's been, always been my drive. You know, it's, we can get there. There's, there has to be a way to get there. I like what you just said. You said, you, we got to find a way to get there. How do you push through those kind of things? Do you get people together in a big group and do you make sure everybody has inputs or do you just make the decisions yourself? How do you process this? No, what I found to be most effective is, you know, you and I had a professor, uh, Dr. Geffner, who said the knowledge is in the room. Um, I have always um, made decisions utilizing the knowledge in the room. I've always reached out to folks and say, hey, this is, this is what needs to happen, and this is why it needs to happen. Now, how do we get there? What's your input? Um, you got a lot of great ideas. I encourage folks, I, it's not uncommon for me to sit down a number of people in a room, close the door, and just brainstorm, write out ideas on a, on a whiteboard, and good, bad, you know, you have to create a safe space and make sure everybody knows, look, there's no bad idea. We're going to put stuff on the board that we know is bad. Put it up there anyway. And um, creating that safe space, people put stuff up that you wouldn't necessarily consider, and you get some great answers out of that. Um, once you kind of know where you want to go, then you got to grease the, the skid, so to speak. You've got to reach out to the folks that can make it happen and start talking to them, getting some buy-in, getting some support. Um, some people are going to tell you no. We'll go to the folks that are going to tell you yes and get the yes people in the room along with you and then get the no people in there and you can build a consensus and you can get there. Yeah, I really like that. So how do you get the no people on board? What are kind of some of the things that you've done in the past for that? Show them a pathway. Um, you know, again, you, you, you get enough people, in my case, from different divisions, uh, enough different experts, and you sit down and collectively everyone's saying, well, if we do this, this can work. If we do this other thing, this can work. This can help get us there. And eventually somebody that had concerns that thought it couldn't be done, they'll come online. They'll come on board. How did you balance, because you were going to school and work at the same time, and you were going to two pretty significantly, significantly, you know, um, recognized schools. How was it balancing those two things and was going to school in retrospect, did that give you value? Yeah, I would say it was easier for me to go, for me to go to school later in life because I was, I was more motivated. I was, you know, I wanted to be there and um, had more self-discipline. Um, the other thing that was really helpful is having a rock star wife. Um, when I met my wife, she was, she was a surgical tech at Kaiser Hospital, Kaiser Permanente, and uh, she decided she wanted to become an RN. In fact, her high school yearbook says that she wanted to be a nurse. Um, so she put herself through surgical tech school and and took care of herself that way. But ultimately she went back to school, got an associate's degree in nursing uh, while she was working full time. And um, you know, we had gotten married while she was in that program. In fact, I tell the story that literally her last class, her last final exam was on the day of our wedding. So she went and took her last final exam that morning. And then we got married at one o'clock that afternoon. <laughs> so um, we, for her, as uh, she went through her career, she went on to get her bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degree in nursing, all while working full-time. Um, and I thought, wow, man, she can do that. I can do that. And what was that like for you? And what was it like for her, really? I mean, what was the, was it difficult for you guys to balance this? School and work? I don't know that it was too difficult. Um, you know, obviously, we certainly have a lot of love for each other and a lot of mutual respect. Um, you know, I helped her with uh, some of her assignments that, you know, she, she'd write out essays, whatever, and i proofread them for her. Um, and, you know, she did the same for me. Um, so, yeah, we, we understood what our goals were, and um, we just supported each other. It just kind of came uh, naturally. 
did going did the, did the skills that you picked up in school have they helped you at all in your organization? And what what, what kind of skills did you learn that 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 you were able to apply to to work? Absolutely, I think the the best program I ever did was the EML program at USC. Um, you know, we started out getting to know ourselves, our strengths, our weaknesses. Um, there were so many things that I took away from that program that I apply every day. Something as simple as I am trying still to this day to remove the word but from my vocabulary. Well, we could do X, Y, Z, but. Um, or if someone's telling me something, saying back to them, oh, yeah, I hear you. That's a good idea. But once you say but, that negates what they were saying. And um, I'm much better at that piece today. But uh, but <laughs> I should say, and in addition to that, um, things I took away from that program, just being a better listener. Um, I tend to be a very let's get to the point kind of person, in part because you only have very limited time. You're getting pulled in a thousand different directions. And I have to consci consciously think, give this person a chance to get their full thought out. Let them be heard. That's important that they be heard. Um, just any number of things like that, that I'm able to apply every day. I'm going to, I want to definitely get into this portion of it. Um, we talked about this previously. How do you motivate the men and women in your group to reach a goal? Is there anything, any advice you'd give anybody out there and regarding that issue? Yes, yeah, so I'll reflect back to the very first semester I spent at Pepperdine in the business program. Um, I had a professor, Dr. Green, and she, you know, her, her PhD was in organizational behavior. And um, she says, you know, you can't motivate anybody. She says, some of you guys are here because you're getting tuition reimbursement or you got a scholarship or whatever. And you would think, well, that was your motivation. It's not your motivation. You still have to make a choice to come in here and put in these hours and do the time. And she's right. You know, as you kind of read through literature, you know, we think money's a motivator, but not really. So what I've found in my experience, the motivating thing for people is for leaders to have a vision, to share that vision, and to explain why it's important, um, and to try to encourage people to share that vision with you. And then they are motivated to be part of that movement, part of that vision. How do you deal with somebody? And we, this happens in every organizations. How do you, how do you deal with people that are Debbie Downers, the ones that they're intransigent? They just want to sit in one position and they don't want to be motivated to improve. They just they're very just happy with the status quo. Um, how do you deal with those kind of, how do you motivate those kind of employees? Well, so the two things. Before I get to that employee, sometimes as a manager, you get handed, the team you get handed. But before I am at that point, oftentimes I'm hiring folks. You got to hire good people. <laughs> you got to be careful to hire good people. Um, easier, you know, there's a, I wish I could find this video. I've been looking for it. There's this thing that talks about, um, Sometimes people are ducks, not eagles. You can't teach a duck to soar like an eagle. So hire eagles. <laughs> that's a that's a good place to start. Um, once you got a team in place, you know your, your team is your team. And if you have somebody who's underperforming, who's a Debbie Downer, you got to go back to you know your policies and your expectations. This is a clear goal that I have set for you. This is what I expect it to be done. And, you know, you hold them accountable. You check in on them. You follow up with them. I'm kind of a hands-off manager. When I give somebody an assignment, I just tell them, this is what I want done, and this is what I want done by. They can get there pretty much however they get there. I, I give them the autonomy to get there on their own, whatever works for them, as long as they get it done. If I, and I, and I follow up. I make sure things are progressing. I make sure I offer up uh, resources to them. Hey, tell me if you need anything, if you're having any challenges, uh, I'm checking in. Um, if that person proves that they can't work independently, then they need more supervision. And that's what I do. 
And how you hire eagles? I think everybody. That's that's the. I think that, like you said, I've I've had the experience. A lot of a lot of managers are very very motivated. But sometimes I've been on management teams where they're just not motivated. They're just they just want to finish their career out and just kind of do the minimum. How do you hire and how do you find those eagles? A couple of things. You know, one is word of word of mouth. Uh, your reputation oftentimes precedes you before you walk into the room. Uh, so you have a pretty good, or sometimes you have a pretty good idea of what you're getting before they come in. But even if you don't know that person, as you're kind of going over their work history and their resume in the interview, I'll go back to the Hall's Garage. You can get a pretty good feel for the character, at least I can. Um, but I also look for red flags. I look for inconsistencies. Are they changing jobs a lot? It's not uncommon for people to change jobs, and especially if they're promoting, it makes perfect sense to me. But if they're changing jobs and they're moving to lateral jobs a lot, that's that's a flag for me. It's not a it's not a deal breaker, but it's a flag. Why are you moving to all these different sections? Are you running from something? Um, so I'm just paying attention to those kinds of, of things. The other thing is that people, when they walk in the interviews, obviously they want to present themselves in the most favorable light. Um, people will sometimes claim credit for things that they haven't done. People who have done the work they can tell you the details. They can tell you how they got there, what the job, um, you know, what, what obstacles they had to overcome, what the challenges were, uh, what worked for them, what they didn't, what didn't work for them, what they learned from it. Folks who are taking credit for work they haven't really done, they don't have any details. How do you, how do you reward success when you out, when somebody's doing well, how do you reward that? Kind of, you know, we've all heard the platinum rule, doing to others as you uh, want them to do to you. I like the, uh, that's the platinum rule? The golden rule. The golden rule, doing to others. The platinum rule is the one that I like, do unto others as they wish to be done. Um, some folks like the limelight. They like recognition. They want to be called up in front of a group of people and um, acknowledged. They want to be, you know, they want to receive an award and applause. If that person likes that, then that's what you can do. Some folks don't like that at all. That's the last thing they want. And so you don't do that for that person. Maybe you just send them, a, and I've done this, I pull, I have thank you cards here at my desk. I pull out a thank you card and just write a thank you note and present that to someone and say, hey, I really appreciate what you did. Um, certainly I've uh, taken a team of folks that work for me out to lunch um, and acknowledge their work. Um, I've done offsite meetings where we sat down and, and went over all things that we've done well, things that we could do better at, but always acknowledging the work that they put uh, forth. What advice would you give to someone? You, and this is a good, I, this is one of the really important reasons why I wanted you on is because you started from the bottom of the organization and moved up pretty much, pretty close to being the top of the organization within your structure. Um, what advice would you give someone to be motivated like you to continue to promote and to try something that even if you didn't, like you said, you went to a division that you didn't even know how to do some of this stuff, but you, you learned how to do it. What advice would you give to somebody if they were breaking into a field to promote? I think, you know, I'll steal something else from our email program. Uh, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, You've you got to be willing to take on assignments and, you know, take some risk. You've got to be willing to fail. I, I've never beat anybody up in my organizations because they failed. Um, I, I have a challenge with them not trying. Um, as long as you're, your heart's in the right place and you're trying to do the right thing, if you got an outcome that wasn't necessarily the one you wanted, that's okay. We can learn from that and we can move on. That is a good thing as far as I'm concerned. Um, for me, my motivation comes again really to being a public servant and trying to make sure that whatever task I'm doing, it's benefiting somebody at the end. And, and not only for our outward facing customers, but for our staff, our employees. Um, I'm always trying to develop people. I'm asking them, hey, where do you want to go? How can I help you get there? What are you doing for yourself? Um, you know, are you in school? Are you, are you taking advantage of training opportunities? Um, are you taking advantage of opportunities to act in a higher position? Um, one of the things that people really have to understand is that hard work 
gets recognized and rewarded because everybody wants somebody, you know, every manager wants somebody who's going to go out there and knock it out of the park. And if you're doing that, then folks see it and they appreciate it. Um, one of the questions, the other questions I have is, and I'm gonna, I, I have to definitely hit on this. You teach, you're a pilot. And, um, and, and how long you've been flying for? And I, you have to tell everybody your, your touch with death story. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a private pilot. Um, I guess it's been about five years since I got my, it's actually called a certificate, technically not a license. Um, gee, the, the touch with death story. I, I guess, I'm not sure I want to call it that, but it was an e-ticket ride. Uh, yeah, I think you got to start from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. So my wife and I were going to just do a, a Saturday trip to Santa Barbara to go have lunch in Santa Barbara in, in our plane. Uh, it's a little six-seater six plane, and uh, we keep it at Van Nuys. So uh, we drive up to Van Nuys. Uh, she's a princess, so she sat and uh, waited for me to pre-fight the plane while I went over everything. So I'm doing my pre-flight, and... Um, the, it's not uncommon for an engine to burn oil. It was down about a quarter oil. I topped it off. Everything was good there. Um, I was missing a couple of screws on the outside of the um, the body, the, what folks would call the hood. And I actually drove up to Home Depot, bought screws, put those screws in to make sure the plane was on tip top. I was really happy with the pre-flight. So to cut to the chase, I uh, pull up to the runway, get clearance to take off. I take off. I had done this flight right after I just updated the avionics in the airplane. I went from a bunch of analog gauges with needles to a bunch of digital uh, equipment. And I was learning that equipment. You know, I had operated it before, but I was still getting dialed in on it. So I took off and I'm flying and I want to program the GPS to take me to Santa Barbara. And I'm fiddling with the GPS and wasn't as focused on the rest of the instruments as I should have been. So a few minutes into the flight, I realized, you know, I'm spending way too much time playing with this GPS. I need to do pilot stuff. So the first thing I do is I look up and look out the uh, windshield and look for traffic, just looking for air traffic. Okay, that's all good. Now let's do a routine scan of all the instruments and make sure everything's good. And I looked down, I saw the oil pressure gauge, and it was in the yellow. And I thought, oh, that's not good. <laughs> My, my first thing was disbelief because I knew I checked the oil and, you know, done a good pre-flight. But I'm like, well, I'm not going to risk that, you know, the, the gauge is lying to me. So I radioed the air traffic controller and um, said, uh, I'm turning back to Van Nuys. I had only been in the air about at the most four minutes, five minutes. And um, when, I, when I radioed the air traffic controller, as you can tell, I talk fast anyway. But I radioed the air traffic controller and set my call sign. It doesn't have a sign. <laughs> and I heard myself through the uh, headset. I'm like, relax. The plane's flying. It's not making any noise. Calm down. Fly the plane. Do what you're trained to do. So I calmed down, made a conscious choice to do that, and returned to the airport. As I'm flying back to the airport, I, I got on final. When you're on final in a plane, you can probably reach the airport even if the engine quits. Uh, so just for me to get on to final, that final glide down to the runway, it was a sigh of relief at that point. And then the engine started to knock. Um, I had actually lost oil pressure. The engine was starting to knock. But uh, I got on down to the runway, and I can tell you to this day, that was the best landing I've ever had, the smoothest landing, because I was focused on, we're going to make this one count. We're not doing, you can't do a go around. <laughs> and uh, sat it down and got it off the runway. and. Found out the engine was was bad through the ride. <laughs> um, it turned out that um, they had done some maintenance to the airplane, and uh, they left the gasket out of the engine, and the oil pumped out. Um, when I did my pre-flight and my run-ups, there was enough oil in there so that all the gauges showed oil pressure. Everything was good. Even taking off, everything was good. But uh, as I was flying, it was pumping oil out. <laughs> so, so the person, the, the the people you paid to do it, the people you paid to fix it, actually did. There was a gasket missing. Missing. Yes. So, needless to say, you had a, a long talk with them. Yes. <laughs> Actually, it was more of a short talk. <laughs> and what and What did your wife say when you were going through this drama? You know, she is really a very calm personality, and she's an operating nurse. She's oh uh, yeah, so she could handle it. She, she, handle she it handles stress well, um, but 
she, you know, she's married to a mechanic for, we're married now in 30 years. Um, so she knows what it means to not have oil pressure. And it's funny, when I saw the oil pressure was low, I said, oh, oil pressure's low. And uh, I radioed Van Nuys and said, I was coming back. And she looked at me and she says, what does that mean? And I said, it means we're going back to Van Nuys. And she said, oh, okay. She was very calm and just very chill about it. <laughs> That's an amazing story. Yeah, that, I, I definitely, and I know you teach it. So, I mean, I, you handled that like a champion, just like every other portion, every other, every other part of your life. Um, if if I was to ask ask you, what advice would the older version of Keith give the younger version of Keith? If you could go and give yourself advice, what would that be? Probably take more risk. Um, you know, to the day I'm risk adverse, but um, I still I take risk. I think when I was younger, um, I was more risk adverse. I think maturing has made me realize it's okay to take risk and fail. You just have to try to try to set yourself up with a winning hand, do everything you can to, to uh, kind of stack the cards in your favor. And uh, if it doesn't work out, then you know that you did your best. How do you stay so motivated? And positive, and, and positive, Keith. One of the, I think one of the things about you is you're you're always super motivated and positive. And like you said, you've actually said it to me, like failing doesn't seem to be something that you're afraid of. Um, how do you how do you think you develop that? I think probably just going back to hearing my parents say you can do it, and and you know hyping you up for you know eighteen years or more, even into my adulthood. Um, okay, I guess I can do it. <laughs> I, you know, sometimes I, I'll sit in my office and I'm amazed at, as I do my work day to day, I think, man, am I doing enough? Am I making the right decisions, you know, to this day? And um, other folks tell me that, man, you're doing a fantastic job. You're going above and beyond. And I don't think I'm going above and beyond. And I think I'm doing a good job. Um, you know, I know I'm, I'm trying to, again, give the ratepayers a lot of value, um, but I just, I come in and just try to do the best I can every day. And I don't think that's exceptional. I think that's expected for me. What are your future goals? Looking forward to retirement in about four years. Uh, my wife and I want to travel. We want to travel the world. When we first got married, we, you know, we were, we were never quote unquote poor, but we were broke. Um, we got married and uh, our, our uh, honeymoon was uh, up to, we took a road trip up to San Jose for our honeymoon. Um, we didn't travel a lot on the front end of our uh, marriage. We did some traveling, but not a lot. But uh, as we got you know more financially able to, we started to travel a lot. And we're looking forward to doing a lot of traveling uh, after we both retire. What's your favorite food guilty pleasure? Chocolate. <laughs> hands down, chocolate chocoholic. I, I'll tell you the one that would would have won hands down if my mother was still here. My mother made a killer lasagna, and um, everybody who's ever had her lasagna has always said, "Oh man, that's the best lasagna I've ever had." Um, us kids, we've tried to replicate it, and you know we do an okay job, but you know, hands down, she had the best lasagna. Since I can't get it from mom anymore, I'm gonna have to default to chocolate. Uh, favorite movie. Casablanca. Why? He, I, maybe I'm not a black and white film kind of guy, but maybe because it's black and white, um, and I just I like the storyline. Uh, I just yeah, it was it's just a great storyline, a, a good feel good story. Uh, who is the one Marvel character that's most like you? <laughs> the Marvel characters? <laughs> I don't even know who the Marvel characters are. Um, I, you know, I just don't know who the characters are. Um, <laughs> I know, I know, Superman's not a Marvel character, but probably Superman would be a. a oh, that's okay. A, character. a lot of people like DC, DC comics. Um, what's your favorite music? Favorite music? I like a lot of jazz. I think Take Five um, is <laughs> good choice, huh? <laughs> I think Take Five is good. Um, yeah, that's probably it. If you can meet one person in your life. And it can be any time in history. Who would that be? And what would you say to them? If I could meet one person in my life, who would that be? And what would I say to them? 
Um, wow, one person. You know, right away, my mind gravitates to uh, Martin Luther King. Um, I don't, you know, if I spend some more time thinking about it, maybe there'd be others, but uh, that was the first person that popped into my mind. Um, one would be a thank you just for everything that he did for the uh, civil rights era, everything that he did for black folks. Um, and then, you know, just getting some leadership advice. That, that would be my question for him. And I guess this is my always last question. And um, when we look back on your life, Keith, and, you know, when you're no longer on this earth any, any longer, and uh, I think you're going to live a couple hundred years, by the way. But um, when people say your name, what do you want to be remembered for? That guy cared about people. That's it in a nutshell. Well, you know what, Keith? Thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate you. Like I said, you, you're a great leader. Um, you've done amazing things. You have an amazing career. And you're just so motivated and so positive and anyone that ever meets you feels the same way. And thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate you. Well, thank you. I certainly appreciate the opportunity to, to share those uh, responses with you. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a good uh, interview. Thanks. Yes, you're welcome. And thank you all for listening. And until then, until next time, keep learning and we'll have another great guest on. Thank you, Keith. Take Worries, care. Take care. Okay.